This is the Director's Podcast with Jeff T. Thomas, Part 2. Let's just look at your process of how you make movies like today compared to how much it's changed since Sleeping right. Dogs, your first movie. How, how would you say your process has changed over this uh, period well, of time? Well, in the time that I've been making films, you know, from the, I guess, the late 60s <laughs> through till now, you know, the biggest change that's happened that I'm aware of is the, is, um, the digital world. I mean, I remember when, when I first came to America, I got myself a computer to, you know, up until then I'd been writing my scripts on, you know, a typewriter and you had to make numerous copies of it to, you know, if you wanted more than one copy, you had to put carbon paper into it. <laughs> and I, and anyway, I got a computer, I remember, and I go like, oh my God, I still remember the day I discovered that you could push all the words apart and put another sentence in and nobody could even tell where it, how it got there. <laughs> I was like, fuck, this is just extraordinary. <laughs> with, a, with a computer, you can push stuff around anywhere and it's all there, whatever you want to do. If you want to find a word, you just go to find and there it is. And yeah. I, I mean, I, I just remember being so sort of, Elated at that, what what a genius idea this was that what a computer could do. Yeah. So along when so when the digital f- editing came along, and I was I was like just dying to get involved in digital editing because I realised that the, exactly the same process could happen that you know you could cut a frame off here and a frame off there and then put it back and you'd never know it had gone. You know yeah. you could hold different versions of the story in the computer and compare it easily with each other and. So I, I, the first film I edited digitally was The Getaway. Right. With um, Alec Baldwin. Uh, Alec Baldwin yeah. and um, Kim Basinger. Yeah. And that was, you know, once I discovered that world, I couldn't, then then when the the, uh, the point and shoot, uh, they were really uh, amateur cameras with this professional sort of potential of, of digital cameras that could shoot film as well. Mm-hmm. Could not shoot film, but shoot digital files to me. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I remember, so I was dying to do a film, shoot a film digitally. And the first film I shot digitally was The Bank Job with um, Jason Statham. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, early days of digital filmmaking. And not, not that it seems that long ago that I was doing it, but I realised how quickly things have changed. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and then, 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 the next big giant change that's happening in the film business, of course, is video streaming, video on demand streaming. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, wow, how's the cinemas, how are cinemas going to um, stand up against this? Because, you know, with the advent of, you know, 4K television sets and great sound systems and big television sets and how's it all going to fit together? I saw the potential of the future, but I also saw the sort of threat of the past. And that's where we are now, of course. And of course, the COVID virus, you know, pandemic has done terrible things to the movie cinema business and totally, you know, been in like a giant shot of adrenaline into the arms of the streaming services. Yeah. And I, you know, I start to wonder if there is a future for feature films because where are they going to be screened? Yeah. It's so difficult, isn't it? When when TV is seems um, like it's king in so many areas. Um, whenever you do get a great movie that comes along, there's nothing else quite like it because you're... And there's nothing like sitting in a great cinema, you know, with fabulous sound and great projection. And it's the greatest experience. Yeah, that's where the yeah. movie business was, you know, this time last year. Yeah. Going to the movies was a fantastic experience. Yeah. That's... Now you fear for your life. No, that's one of the things I miss the most, actually, right now. Is Me the too. The ability just to go and turn off everything for 
No, and days. you know, be there in the dark, and you get completely you get immersed in a way that you'll never get immersed at home. Yeah, you know, there are too many distractions. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah. But your process as a filmmaker has it? Uh, let me let me give an example of what I mean. I I went for a talk. Uh, Steven Spielberg, James Cameron, and J.J. Abrams did a talk at the Directors Guild um, one year, and you know, three great people to to go and listen to. Spielberg said that. When he moved from the Steenbeck to the Avid, he discovered that you can do a cut super quickly and you can try it out. And if it doesn't work, you can, you know, control Z, you can put it back, there's no loss. But what he missed was when he was editing on film, he would, you know, give Michael Kahn, whoever his editor was at that time, his note, and then he would go for a walk and he'd walk around the Universal lot and he would think about the movie and he would think about the process. And he felt like there was something lost by not cutting on film. Do you, would you agree with that? I couldn't, I'm the complete 180 degree opposite. Right. For me, it was such complete liberation once long digital editing came along. Right. To me, it gave, you know, the, 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 the problems of filmmaking were in fact the, that it was physical, you know, the film was so fragile, the negative was so fragile and the processing was always, I was always losing film and getting scratches on my stuff. Yeah. One of my movies, the whole, all the master negative was scratched by a, by a incompetent um, person who was, you know, logging the film. Right, right. And if it wasn't for digital technology, that film would have been a complete throwaway. But that was, or the negative was, not, not a print. Negative, you were, you the original cutting, negative was You were was cutting a negative? You were cutting the negative? Well, no, the, the cutter oh. scratched all the negative. Wow. So, you know, I've had some horror stories of, of physical filmmaking. It's pretty terrifying. And, the, of course, the size of, you know, the other thing that's happened too is that the, the size of the cameras and the quality of the cameras is, you know, now you've got GoPros that'll shoot as good a quality as a Mitchell ever would, you know. Yeah. You've got this tiny little camera that can go anywhere. Yeah. You've got drones that can fly around and doing amazing aerial shots, yeah. flying out of windows and do whatever you want. Yeah. Filmmaking, I mean, I think filmmaking now is its a very different experience. I wouldn't say it's easier now, but it, there's more opportunities to be creative now than there used to be. Mm-hmm. So you find it liberating in, in every I way? I do, completely liberating. And is, is it liberating, um, you know, also you're not dealing with 1,000-foot mags or 800-foot mags, you can continue Well, yeah, all of the, the physical, you know, I mean, listen, there was nothing. I mean, the bounty was a great example I had, you know, giant arc cameras, I'm sorry, giant arc lights. Yeah. There were all these Panavision cameras. I mean, it was big filmmaking and it wasn't the stuff that you could do on an amateur basis. You could only do this at a sort of, you know, extreme professional, you know, level. Yeah. And now filmmaking, you know, you you know, if you've, if you've got the talent, you know, you can make damn good looking films with on the weekend with your mates. So your process on set or on location is the same then, you would say, or is it, or, or, or do you move faster now because you have it? Like this, or I wouldn't say I'm moving a lot faster. I mean, there's, there's, you know, I mean, lighting can take a lot less time. Yeah, uh, you don't have to reload magazines, you know. So there's some savings like that. One of the things that I look at is, you know, how did the day get chopped up? Who got what? What? What department got the most time or, or the least time? And often it's, I look at the who got the least time. It's me with the actors right. saying lines. Yeah, the lighting takes time. The light putting down tracks and dollies takes time. Yeah. Um, Hair and makeup takes time, you know. Getting enough time to shoot the film is you can be you can you can be the one who's a bit shortchanged as the director. And so the, I think the digital world gives that gives the director more time with the, with the product. But there is the danger, isn't it? As as 
things move more quickly, the expectations for a film to be shot more quickly also come about. Oh, I know, but it's always been a job that's had lots of pressure. You know, I don't remember ever turning up to the set and there was no pressure. Laurence Olivier, Daniel Day-Lewis, Anthony Hopkins, Al Pacino, Tom Cruise, Morgan Freeman, Colin Farrell, Kevin Costner, Forrest Whitaker, Ben Kingsley, Robin Williams, Sissy Spacek, Gene Hackman, Pierce Brosnan. What do you think is the greatest thing that you've learned from all of these, this incredible pool of talent? Well, every one of these people are, you know, extraordinarily talented. Yeah. But every one of them is also, you know, by their own admission would say they got lucky, but they have to work hard to get lucky. So every one of them is, you know, had a really determined determination about them. Where they were, I'm sure, at the beginnings of their careers, they're just, you know, as hungry as they could be, and, and they're still hungry. Yeah. None of them ever walked, talked, phoned in. But do you, like, before you worked with these people, compared to now, what do you think you've learned from working with them? Like your approach to presenting something or collaborating with an actor, what would you do differently now? Well, you know, I mean, listen, there's some, you know, you, re you reel off a bunch of really fantastic actors and then there's some actors that I would love to put in the list. People like Bruno Lawrence who's in Smash Palace. Yeah. So, you know, just because somebody's, the names are famous and mean a lot to the public doesn't mean that me as a director right. doesn't respect some of the other actors that I've worked with who nobody would even know who they are. To get great people into your films is obviously a challenge and you're only as good as the actors that you can get to be in your films. And if you get, you know, as, a, as I've had the good fortune to have some really great actors and well-known actors work with me, that obviously helps, you know, when you come to marketing the film and trying to sell it, you know, you're not trying to sell a brand that nobody's heard of. Does it get easier as you as you um, move forward? <laughs> it does not get easier as you get on, get with more of it. See, I would have thought that, like, this, you know, I, I love the recruit, right? When the recruit comes out, I would have imagined, like, you know, you got Al Pacino, you got, you know, um, Colin Farrell. I'm not, not sure who signed on first, probably Pacino, I'm presuming. But I presume it would have been easier getting actors of that caliber, especially Pacino at the time, knowing that they know that you have worked with all these fantastic... Yeah, I mean, I think, I think uh, you know, obviously it gets easier to be sort of considered, taken seriously if you've got a bunch of work that people can see already what you've done. Yeah. But, you know, people can also make sort of um, assumptions about who you are as a filmmaker based upon what you've done and not what you want to do. And how do you how do you combat that? Well, you just keep going, you know. I don't think you spend too much time looking back. You just keep wanting... I mean, I still love everything to do with films I still love doing. Mm -hmm. I still, you know, love... You know, I'm in the middle of writing a few scripts and who knows if they'll ever get made, but I've... You know, it's just business as usual for me, really. Well, talking about writing, I mean, there's something that you started your career on and then you, as far as IMDb goes, you know, you, you didn't write a bunch of movies. And then you obviously you wrote uh, The World's Fastest Indian, you know, which is another fantastic movie. Um, how would you say your process is different to when you've written a project to when you've been hired to direct a script? Well, first of all, you know, I never want to take away the writer's credit, you know, yeah. try and claim that it's my, you know, if somebody's written a script and now I'm the director, well, part of being the director is to make it fit into the budget and fit into the locations available. And you know, if you've got logic problems with a thriller, you've got to try and sort those out and, you know, you've got to satisfy the, the actor's interests. You know, you might have somebody like Alan who's got ideas about how they want the scenes to play or the scene, a particular scene to play. So there is lots of 
elements that change in an original script that got everybody's enthusiasm to make it in the first place to a finished movie script. And so, you know, the scripts that I've taken credit for are the ones that I've, you know, they were my idea and I've written. Is that... If I've, if I've been involved in rewriting somebody else's work to make it fit the, the sort of reality of making the film, then I'm obviously not going to take their credit away from... Is that, um, by writing The World's Fastest Indian, was that a way of getting your career back working in the direction that you wanted to work in? Well, yeah. it's how, you know, every one of my movies hopefully doesn't sort of remind you of another one. Everyone hopefully is, has a, an identity of its own. Yeah. If you compared movies like Species with, say, 13 Days, you know, they're very, very different movies with a different audience and a different sort of sensibility and yeah. trying to say something very different. Um, but they were both great. You know, I enjoyed making them, both of them. Yeah. Yeah, I was about to say, totally actually, different reason. I, I, 13 Days, I loved when that movie came out. Um, I saw it several times in the cinema. Um, oh, thank you. Species, I hadn't seen for a long time, so I watched watched it last night. And I was surprised, like, the scale of that movie and so, and also Dante's Peak as well, which is a, another... Well, Dante's Peak really is a giant scale. I mean, I presume, you know, you have some visual effects in that movie. You know, it's not d digital in the sense that it is today, but uh, I presume a lot no, of that was everything miniatures. in that film is real. I mean, all those giant miniatures with the, you know, the right. eruptions and the giant lahars coming down the river valleys and sweeping away the bridge and the Humvees getting, you know, yeah. all that stuff is real. Real meaning miniatures, yeah. Well, real big miniatures. Yeah. Uh, and that's why it worked so well, I think. I think if you tried to do any of that digitally, it would have looked more raw and no, demeric, you, you, you know, and, which no. isn't, for me, doesn't have the, the same level of impact as, as a movie. And I think before. in some ways that was of the big scale films I've done, that was in some ways the most enjoyable because it was so challenging and I had my own interest in geology having, you know, in a geology student, I was interested in the subject matter yeah. and sort of felt like I knew something about what I was talking about. Yeah. Trying to turn the sort of, you know, these facts about volcanology into entertainment. What about what about the volcano? Because I was surprised how good that held up. How did you do that? Uh, well, the, the volcano, a lot of it was we shot around Mount St. Helens. Right. But you had the and plumes of smoke and the, or the ash. Well, that, that was, no, that was all digital stuff. That was digital, is it? Yeah. Yeah. But some of it was real, you know. Some of it was some existing footage of of real of real digital, you know, not real digital, of real uh, eruptions. Right, because it looks real. But we also yeah. did some pretty big scale, you know, miniatures for the eruptions. Right, right. So it was a collection collaboration of, uh, you know, um, yeah. collection of three different ways of getting yeah. it done. I know because you know you've got those two kids driving in the car as well, and you got the ash hitting the. Was no, that was that was pretty. You know, that was that was very demanding stuff. That would you, you know, working at night with young kids. Yeah, and it had to be. I mean, like there's a sequence of going across the lava field where all the tires catch fire on the truck and all that. I mean, that's all real. There's nothing in that is digital. Would would you do it like? Poor man's process with the kids, and then well, we we had we you know we had we had a uh, what looked we had for the lava was you know pink paint, right? Okay, and then there was real it was all you know had um, fire laid beneath the surface of it you know piped in with gas, right? And then we had double windows in the in the vehicle so that you know the fire if if it, nothing could hurt the, anybody inside the car inside the truck with the stunt people inside the truck, right? Yeah, but it was pretty. Pretty dramatic to do it. 
Obviously, CG has been so liberating in so many different ways, but you forget how good miniatures can actually work. Well, you know, one thing I learned, and it was that transition from, you know, what I call reality filmmaking to digital filmmaking. Mm. The transition was pretty tough. So you'd try to do things digitally that should work, and then you know, like miniature, you know, or you had figures that you're trying to make to stick to the wall, or mm -hmm. like in the case of species, mm -hmm. and, you know, they were, I, I just kept, I had to keep reverting back to real stuff. Right. Because the, the, the digital world just wasn't advanced enough yet. So how would that work? Would you say, you know, like the first time you see the being on the train and in species, would you say, right, we gonna, I'm going to give that to, you know, um, do that in CG and then you'd see a test and it wouldn't work out. You're like, right, no, we've got to No, I mean, like that, like that sequence on the train where she comes out of the, out of the pod on the ceiling. Yeah. It was all physical. Yeah, yeah, but you always knew you were going to do that one physically. Yeah, yeah, I never you? imagined yeah. that I was going to do it digitally. Yeah. No. no, especially at the time, that would have been yeah. a bit of a stretch for any yeah. any CG. Uh, yeah. If you were to take three moments out of your career, out of your entire career, what would be the three positive, negative, or just most memorable yeah. that you would you would highlight? Well, you know, so, I mean, listen, I mean, if I take sort of po positive moments, I mean, like the the success of Smash Palace, you know, when I went to Cannes was, you know, yeah. and I realised that was never th nothing was going to be the same again after that. I knew that even at the beginnings of that experience. Um, having, you know, movies like Cocktail or uh, No Way Out open number one on the weekend that they were released. Mm -hmm. and I remember Cocktail when it came out was the biggest opening that Disney had ever had. Wow. What was it like working with Tom Cruise uh, on at that period of time, being such a hot actor, just coming off uh, Top Gun? So the experience of working with Tom Cruise was, you know, one of the more memorable moments of my filmmaking career, I guess. I mean, Tom was obviously going to be a giant star. He's been in Top Gun, I think, the colour of money by that stage. And uh, just his sort of attitude to how we were going to do this film and how he was going to, you know, his commitment to the part. I mean, I remember going out on the town with him in New York and, he, we, you know, he would get behind the bar and nobody would know it was Tom Cruise <laughs> serving people and get the hang of what it was like to be in a real barman in a, in a real bar. Um, they wouldn't know it was Tom Cruise because they wouldn't expect no. that he would do it well, or that, he would that be would be the last person that would be expected to be behind the bar. Yeah. In fact, I think I remember one night, you know, Tom saying, you know, somebody saying to him, you know, you look like Tom Cruise, you know, yeah, but he's a big guy. <laughs> Of course, nobody. But I just, you know, Tom's determination to be, uh, you know, I mean, everything that Tom does, whether you like his, uh, like his work or not, the one thing that nobody can deny is how how committed Tom is to everything he does. I mean, we, we see it even with the films he's still making. He really, really wants to give it everything he can. Yeah, I love him. I think he's and, um, So, I, you know, I found it very. Uh, he was his work ethic, and you couldn't ask for any more commitment from any actor. Even back then, I mean, I. You know, because obviously... No, I mean, you, you know, know, we would... And it was fun to work with too, you know, Brian Brown, who was, was in that film as well, yeah. an Aussie actor. Yeah. Um, we, we, I mean, I remember when we were up in um, Canada making the film and, you know, we, we would we would get a... We would all go out on Saturday night and have as much fun, you know, after hours as we did making the film. And yet, of course, it was, you know, like every other movie I've ever made, there were plenty of challenges. Like what? Oh well, like we had a we had a, a problem with a DP that you know underexposed a whole lot of film or overexposed. There was a major, major three or four days work and been sort of thrown away, and we obviously had to get somebody else in. And there were sort of you know issues 
personality issues and, uh, and anyway we've got another DP to come in and now things changed immediately but those are the parts of the filmmaking process that you'd want to forget about not remember well I think sometimes this it's good for people to hear the difficulties that people have making movies because yep. um, when they have difficulties whether they're just starting out or whether they've made their first TV show or whatever you take solace in in um, Understanding that you're not all by yourself. <laughs> you know, that's, no, no, it's, no. It's, I mean, and listen, I mean, half, half the job is problem solving. You know, just yeah. the the shit that comes along and how you're going to solve that problem. Yeah, and not and being you know decisive in your decisions and make, obviously making the right decisions. And that starts with you know who you're going to get as cast and crew and where you're going to your locations and you know, your, the schedule that you agree to and the budget that you say you're going to make the film for. Would you, uh, obviously you've worked with several of your actors many times, would you do the same thing with the DP and the, you know, the editor and et cetera? Well, you know, these are the, I mean, the DP and the editor and you know, the production designer, I mean, these are uh, these are the people that are the real fundamental sort of bedrock of how you make a film. Yeah. And so, you know, those are relationships that I've, you know, we've got lots of friends that do those jobs mm -hmm. because you're so dependent upon them. And that's so much fun to have somebody that's, you know, you're all both on the same wavelength trying to make the same movie. And yeah. When, when I was living in London um, doing, doing commercials, I would have three or four DPs that I only worked with for about 10 to 15 years uh, and, uh, you know, I'd only alternate between them because inevitably one wouldn't be available while I was shooting one thing. And, you right. know, so is, did, did you have something similar in your career? Well, that, you know, that's always been the sort of um, challenge, I guess, is, you know, you've, you find really great people to work with and then they've, because they're so good, that other people think they're good too. Yeah, exactly. So trying to find people that are as good as the last one you got. I mean, I've, I mean, the people that, obviously have a lot of impact is how the movie looks and how the movie gets cut together. Those two jobs have enormous, but you know, the casting people, the, I mean, uh, there's, there's no spare change out of a movie. Yeah. Everybody's job is so necessary to the whole process. Yeah. And if one of them fails, the whole movie fails. And how would you go about um, picking uh, your movies or do they pick you? How, how does that, how has that process worked for you previously? Oh, I think they sort of pick you and you pick them, you know? Right. Do, do you actively you know, go after projects, though, or that you? No, not about? really. No. So you're like producer you've worked with previously will say like I've got the, like how how did how did um, cocktail come about for example? Well, I had I guess Disney were you know they were going to do this movie and I was you know the new kid in town. I'd just done No Way Out and No Way Out was a successful film yeah, and I'd cool. obviously done the big scale stuff that I'd done with the Bounty and Marie was an intimate film. Yeah. So those three films, I'm sure, Jeffrey Katzenberg, you know, helped him make his decision. Right. So he called you or your agent and then... I, I think it was through my agent. Right. My memory of it was. Harry Affleck was my agent at the time. Um, obviously, the soundtrack to that movie was a huge soundtrack. I think it went number one at the time. Could you... It was, yeah. I mean, the music... When I came on board, there was no music element sort of thought of. And I was like... There's got to be something extra about this movie, and I had this idea of you know the the the, the bartenders could be sort of like you know old western gunslingers where they the twirling of the of the six gun you know the guns was sort of that's what a, a great gunfighter was going to have to do if he couldn't put his gun away with a bit of style he wasn't not going to be a gunfighter and I had this theory that if you you know you could I had seen a video or something of a guy somewhere in the valley and thank God it's Fridays who had this 
performance, you know, yeah. where he was throw the bottles around. Yeah, yeah. So I tracked this guy down to the valley and got him to come in and give Tom a demonstration and Tom immediately understood what I was trying to do. And so the sort of routines of these guys with their bottle throwing became, you know, part of, it was not originally conceived to be in the story, but wow, okay. it felt like this would take it to another level. And then once that happened, you obviously needed music to go with it. And so the music tracks became more and more important. And then the track, Don't Worry, Be Happy, I remember I was driving to work one day and I heard it on KCRW and the, 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 the music had already been released. And I was like, God, that could, that could be just perfect for some of this, you know, some of the footage. They re-released the, the, um, the track after it had been released. Um, Bobby Darren, Bobby McFerrin, I think his name was. And the, it went to number one and there was another Kokomo, another thing, uh, the Beach Boys. Yeah. I remember um, one of the Beach Boys came into the cutting room and he had a little tiny dinky recorder where he had a demo of Kokomo on it and we stuck it on top of the editing machine and played it against some footage and was like, God, this could be great. And, you know, the Beach Boys hadn't had a hit for years. So they brought a demo track to you specifically for this movie to pitch to you. Yeah, exactly what happened. Wow, that's amazing. And of course that went to number one after it was all yeah. right. And the album itself also, I think was number one. So for me, I just, you know, I got a bunch of songs that I really loved that I thought, you know, would entertain as well as fit the movie and the style of the movie and all that. And we had enough actually for two albums, but only one album got released. I think it's amazing that, um, the, you know, the bottle twirling and everything that seems such a mainstay, such a center point to that movie wasn't in the original script. No. It seems like the ho- so well, much I of mean, and that's, yeah. and that's what a director does. You know, you come along and you, get, you try and elevate it to another level. Yeah. And that was probably in some ways the biggest contribution that I made to it was to introduce that element to the story and give it more entertainment value. So would you do that? Like, did you have to pitch on the movie or did they offer you and you accepted it and then discovered that or did you have to pitch that to Jeff, I, I honestly can't remember. I do remember <laughs> Je- having a meeting with Jeffrey Katzenberg where he was talking about No Way Out and said, you know, if they had made No Way Out, they could have made another, I don't know, 50 million bucks out of it or something and they would have had a different end. And I said, yeah, but Jeffrey, I wouldn't have done the movie, would I? Why, why wouldn't you have done that movie? Well, because the, the the whole, you know, the story of what, I, you know, I don't want to give it away in case somebody is, okay, hasn't seen the movie because the ending of it is a, big twist, the ending yeah. of it is a part of the story. Yeah, but yeah. to me, it would have been a different movie if it didn't end like that. I think the ending kind of gave it that punch that, that, that the movie Well, that's needed. what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, without that, it, it, I mean, it was still a very good movie. It kept, you know, the tension was going the entire time, you know, and the, the characterization and the, you know, the relationships and... I mean, Gene Hackman. I'm a huge Gene Hackman fan. How? how Me too. God. How was that? Yeah, Gene was one of the well, Gene one of the best actors I could say I've worked with. Can you give me? Can you give me an example of what it was like working? But with it was Gene? just so real, you know. You didn't, you know, it was no bullshit. No, you know, you didn't want to talk about what the motivation was. He says, "I know what I'm getting paid. That's the motivation." So just let's get on and do it. And of course, well, there was no cynicism about his work. You know, he just. He was, you know, he's, he's the, the the fact that he's so real in everything he's ever done. You know, he's he's got that great sort of great sort of cackle laugh that he's got that sort of half halfway between good and bad. You know, you're not sure. He's just got such a strong screen presence. Are actors like Gene, you know, who's so far along in his career when he made that movie, um, 
Are they still, I guess it depends on the direction, but how open are they to, you know, tainting their performance and, you know, 180ing, a, you know, a moment if necessary? Or do you find that they're, they come in prepared and they're locked in? Or, or how, what's your experience being with people like... Uh, um, what is my experience? I mean, you know, I think part of your job as a director is to be persuasive, you know, yeah. get people in behind, you know, get them to see it through your eyes. Yeah. You don't want to be, you know, the worst thing that you can be is if you're at loggerheads with the actor and you don't agree on how something should be played or what's the intent of the scene or, and, you know, I've actually had none, none of that in my career as far as I can remember. Usually I can, you know, well, it's, uh, part of it is like getting the actor's involvement right from the very beginning and make it very clear to them that a good idea is a good idea and you, we're going to make a movie that you're going to feel like you want to contribute, contribute to it. You don't, you know, I'm, you're not going to be there standing there waiting to be told what to do. You're going to, as much a part of the creative process as I am. Yeah, that's probably why so many of your movies have been so successful. Is as part why actors love to work with you so much. No, I think you know. I think um, well, I've had some you know really big names have come back. We've done more than one movie, and yeah. obviously that doesn't happen if they had a terrible time. <laughs> what about um, what about the technical side of things? Do you storyboard or what? I, I can't. Well, you know, I sort of come to filmmaking from the technical side. So you know, I was a cameraman used to shoot when I was shooting documentaries I was you know I was the cameraman yeah and then I would I was the editor and so you know I, I feel like I I uh, have got a you know, deep knowledge about how films are made yeah but I also acknowledge that you know other people you know when they're when that's their total focus are going to do it better than you could do it if you're trying to do everything right yeah I was watching, um, what was I watching? Dante's Peak. You probably didn't have the money as much for Smash Palace, but I noticed there was a lot of Steadicam work in Dante's Peak. Well, once I discovered the Steadicam, and I discovered the Steadicam on the Bounty because, you know, they were trying to move the camera on board ship. You know, it was obviously on a rolling ship. It's not easy. Right. And we had a really fantastic Steadicam operator. Right. And uh, that was my introduction to the Steadicam. And so every movie I've done since then really has been, you know, a lot of it's been shot on the Steadicam. Is that just like the energy of it or is that something that's born out of the story? Or? Well, I, uh, I mean, I think, you know, moving the camera gives a sort of story energy and, uh, re, you know, repositioning the camera so that, you know, the, the viewer can see stuff from a different perspective and doesn't get bored with the one angle. and. It's, you know, and it keeps, you know, with a, with a, and it takes a really great operator to make it work well. Yeah. And how would you, how would you develop Nothing's that? worse than bad Steadicam operating. Or you can spoil a mile off. It's yeah. like going like this. <laughs> I saw a movie. I mean, good Steadicam operating, you don't know, you don't even realise it's there. Well, that's the thing, I think, in No Way Out, I, I was so, in, you know, encapsulated in the story and, you know, who and what and why. I, you know, I, I, I try not to watch anything on a technical basis. Um, I think I only picked it up on, uh, Dante's Peak because that was such a technical feat. You, it's hard to be ignored. <laughs> you know, it's right. like I'm watching Dante's Peak and I'm I'm thinking, I wonder, like, when Roger did No Way Out, did he storyboard that movie? Because I presume he storyboarded a lot of Dante's Peak because of the visual effects and the multi levels yeah. of, of you know technical stuff that you did. Um, is that true? Would you like if you came up with a Steadicam shot? Would would something in the script inspire you when you read it, or would that develop on set? No, it all comes out of the rehearsals when right. we were on the set, and we we're going to we're just going to work out how we're going to cover so it. So you wouldn't necessarily know how you want to cover it until you see what no, the actors are doing. No, yeah, because that's no. That, I mean, storyboarding, of course, is great in sort of trying to tell the story to yourself. Yeah, to help you understand how you know you've got to turn this these words into visuals. 
It's funny, isn't it? Because some some directors like to develop a, a honest and true performance, and you know, a, a, um, a blocking on stage with the actors. Well, that's sort of. I mean, that's sort of what I try and do is yeah. get the get the actors to you know, don't worry about the where the camera is going to be. Worry about how where you want to be as an actor in the room. You know, you're going to stand or sit for this. Are you going to move from here to here? Or are you going to get in the guy's face? Or yeah. What's how's it how's the story going to play out in real time, and then the challenge from the, the the DP and the operator and the director is to you know how are we going to get this on screen, yeah, be able to capture all these, these delicate delicate moments that we're trying to get out of the scene. And how would you feel that you know obviously somebody like Spielberg has had you know great success, and if you watch some a movie like um, Catch Me If You Can. You know, Tom Hanks comes in, he's holding the gun, it passes on to another gun. You know, he uses the proscenium in such a way that is kind of unique only to him at that period of time. Um, it's been imitated, you know, a lot uh, since. How would, do you feel like you lose something by doing that or gain something from doing that? Well, I'm not sort of aware of losing or gaining, I guess. It's, you know, just find a way to tell the story and tell it so that the audience gets involved and forgets they're watching a film and gets involved. I mean, yeah. when, the, when a movie's really working, you're not sort of thinking about where the camera is or what the music is or the, what the effects are doing. You're just like you're in the story. Yeah. That's something I really loved about 1917, actually, it was the, the fact that you don't need coverage. You know, it's you got this one single shot. No, and, no, it was, it was impressive. Yeah. There were a few times that I was sort of more thinking about the filmmaking there than the movie. Yeah, I, got, I have to say I started like that and then I just got lost, you know. So apart from the plane crash, I just got lost in the story and wasn't... But it's impressive. It's I mean, incredible. there's no undermine, undermine. Yeah. So um, let's just jump into... Um, so, we, you know, we, we've talked a good few points there. Um, a couple of other um, memorable moments, maybe some that you'd care to forget or just something that would really stand out in your mind? I mean, the, there was one, you know, right at the very beginning when I was making um, Smash Palace, you know, I had no, I had really no experience with, um, with you know, dangerous stunts. Mm-hmm. We had a stunt where a car was to come down the road and supposed to play the driver's falling asleep and drives off the road and flips the car. Mm-hmm. And um, we had this stunt guy who said, he, yeah, he knew how to flip a car and we had no safety bars built into the car. We had no, he didn't have any seat to harness or anything. I think he had a crash helmet on, but he had a rope that sort of was across the seat. And he said, I'm, I said, well, how are you going to? So he said, when the car's upside down, I just hug myself to the seat and this rope. And the way the, the stunt happened and I was, the, the car sort of got, you know, finished up upside down and got, you know, flattened to the roof line. And I was like, oh my God, I, I, I suddenly thought that there was the possibility that he was dead. And I think at that point I realised that, you know, your responsibility as a director to make sure that, you know, you're not putting people's lives at risk to do something is important. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. Um, so that was one of my more memorable moments for me personally. That shot you have at the back of the race car is really going fast. I mean, the, the, it is going the fast. feeling it's of probably speed doing, you know, is, 150, 160 miles I mean, hour. it's unbelievable. I mean, that's as, as good as any... You know, motor racing, and the, and the guy driving it is a you know was one of New Zealand's best race car drivers, and he came to America and became a very successful race car driver here. Right, and, but he's driving on a domestic road there as well. True, yeah, it was a closed road. Although we had somebody, we, we, a guy on a tractor, nearly drove out onto the road while we were shooting him. Well, that's the thing. You've when you're doing 150 miles an hour, it's hard to lock down. We that weren't going to be stopping for the tractor. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> you're not going to stop with the tractor. Um, is that something that has always been of interest to you? Because obviously the, the world's fastest Indian with Anthony Hopkins, that was uh, something that you wrote, um, obviously based on a, you know, a great true story is, as, and obviously well, McLaren, uh, the, the new documentary. You yeah, I guess. Loved. I mean, my dad loved, my dad and my grandfather both were car crazy. My grandfather was a doctor and could afford to have sort of, you know, good cars. Right. And my dad, um, he just enjoyed, you know, taking me to the car racing and doing stuff like that. And so some of that passion for automated, you know, motor racing stuck with me. Yeah. And then I was, you know, so then with that interest, I was like, well, what about the people that do this? Who are they? You know, what are, what's behind their story? Who are they? Well, and so, you know, some of the stuff that I found interested me from two perspectives was like, what are these people like as well as what's the sport like or what's the, what are they doing? Well, you know, so the world of like uh, Bonneville and the, the, you know, the, the experience of all these people who gather there once a year to try and set new land speed records, yeah. I found appealing for just because of the spectacle and the Americana sort of a quality of it, yeah. the extreme sort of, you know, of what Bonneville Soul Flats is like and um, the people that participate in this sport and their passion for it and their sort of commitment to risk as well as to, you know, technical perfection. There was a great line in the movie which you wrote. It had something, somebody said to Hopkins, do you ever worry about the danger? And he goes, no, my love, I, I, I'm i going to butcher it. He goes, I live more in 15 minutes traveling at that speed than most people right, right, do in yeah. a lifetime. In fact, in fact it's, it's a line taken from the real guy, the real who said, you know, you can more, you can live more in five minutes on one of these motorcycles than some people do in a lot. Fifteen minutes, you'd probably come to the end of the track, <laughs> doing two hundred and one miles an hour, which exactly. is exactly. the land speed record at that point. Right. So that you know that film was based upon a documentary I made back in nineteen seventy two when I first came to America. Yeah. I went to Bonneville with the real guy and you know made a made a, a film that was half of it was shot on a camera like the yeah. one behind you. So do you? So when do you decide you're going to write a project versus direct a project? I guess you've been so busy in your career. I'm just speculating. You have another. Well, I'm time. always writing. There's like there's a whole, you know, you can't really see here, but there's shelves of sort of scripts that are right, half written. Right. I'm in the middle of writing, you know, a few right now. What are, what are you writing now? Anything you want to share? Uh, I've got a good friend, Phil Cogan, who's a is a front guy and amazing race and uh, tough as nails. And uh, we've been friends for years, and Phil and I have been writing some sort of nothing like we've ever done before. They're sort of uh, a TV series that's sort okay. of a bit like uh, The Castle. I don't know if you ever saw that Aussie um, movie. I did, yes. It's a sort of, you know, quite, quite yeah. odd slice of life movie a little with <laughs> that you Yeah, you I love Australian movies, actually. No, there's yeah, been some really I mean, good Nicholas ones. Rogue, I mean, you, you know, even... Well, Nick Rogue, uh, Nick Rogue is one of my favorite filmmakers. Yeah. You know, Don't Look Now, I think, is a brilliant film. It's funny, when I start, first started watching Sleeping Dogs, I was expecting um, something like Walkabout, you know, because it started so slow and yeah, yeah. You know, you're getting into this yeah. this world of, of Sam Neill. And and then where it went was totally unexpected. You know? It's oh, like, took, it completely took me by I mean, surprise. There's nothing better than watching a film when you've got no idea where yeah. it's going to go. Oh, absolutely. And just get lost in the moment, you know. It's um, yeah. and but it's it's weird because, you know, in Sleeping Dogs, especially in the first act of that movie, you know, you had to, to my and, and like I said, I always watch the story. I don't dissect the technicalities of it, but it didn't feel like there was much presence of music. It felt like it was this man looking for this solitary environment, and that was reflected by the the way that you shot it. It was all very simple, and it was all very pure and honest. Yep. 
And then by the time you get into the complexities of, of, of this hell that he finds himself in, it's a lot more chaotic and it's, it feels more handheld right. and you've got the helicopters flying by and the, you know, it's, it's just, yeah. it felt like the way that you direct is, you know, what I think any great filmmaker does is tells a story from the emotional point of the lead actor at that one, at that point in the story. Right. Yeah. That's what I'm yeah. trying to do. How was the recruit? The recruit we made up in um, Canada in the winter. And it was, you know, it was the sort of, in some ways, a really perfect time to make it because it had a, you know, very sort of bleak yeah. look about it. And seemed to, you know, from my perspective, gave the film a sort of quality that would be hard to do if it was all bright sunshine. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you know, I loved working with Colin and, and uh, Opportuno. They were both, you know, brilliant actors and they both enjoyed each other's yeah. company. No, it was, it was did fun you, to When do. you got that script, when that landed on your desk, did you have to change a lot in the script? What, what, what was the process of that? No. The, in fact, there was a writer still working on it when I was signed on, and so, you know, the changes that were made to it were made okay. with the writer. So they gave you, like, you know, a, a draft that the producer was happy with, and then you jumped on for that next pass. Right. The, I mean, the, yeah, I was... I mean, it was a movie that was a go movie from right. day one. And was Pacino and Con Farrell, were they on the movie at that point? No, I don't... My memory is they were. So that was just that, that's how it worked back then. You'd have the studio movie, and they knew they were going to shoot it. Yeah, I mean, if a studio says they're going to make a movie and this is the start date, then obviously it's you know either you're doing it or not doing it. How do you feel that's changed today to how it was back then? Well, it's probably a bit you know similar. Mm-hmm. I mean, ever since I did uh, the world's fastest Indian, my world has been more independent movies. Why is that? Do you think? Well, because, you know, some of the movies, you know, the big tentpole movies are these, you know, movies like, um, you know, the um, Marvel comic movies that are not really yeah. my style. So people aren't going to think of me for that as a director and it's probably not going to be of my interest to me anyway. I mean, the movies that are, the films that are of most interest to me these days are the more independently produced ones that are What do you think made. is lost? Because I, I feel like in particular the 90s. Oh, nothing's getting lost. It's just, you know, you just... In, fa- in fact, in some ways, you know, the sort of the story movies are being, you know, now there's Netflix and Amazon and those sort of outlets for the yeah. product. And, they've, you know, television has gone from being a dirty word into being sort of, well, if you can get some TV work, you've <laughs> you still got a career that's alive and well. And that's something that you would like to get into now? You were talking about writing your own TV series? Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I think there's a lot. I mean, listen, there's, as long as the talent is, as long as there's opportunities for talent to do creative stuff, there'll yeah. be good stuff. So, um, moving to the end of uh, part two now, um, if you had to start from the beginning again, um, if I start from the you, beginning again, what would you what do, would do differently? Do? Differently? Yeah. Uh, maybe, you know, it'd be good to know a bit more about filmmaking before I started, because I started off knowing zero, and I was living in New Zealand where there wasn't sort of anybody that I could sort of look over their shoulder, or the first experience I ever had of seeing a film being made, I sort of, in, in, I went, I came to America here and I had a friend who had a friend who was a film, was a DP, Brick Marquard, and Brick had um, done some John Ford movies. Anyway, um, I stayed with this guy for a week and he took me on the set of the TV series he was shooting. And sort of in that one day I went to the set, you know, I felt like God, I learned more of that one day than I had in a few years of filmmaking, just seeing how a real movie got shot. So more technical. Well, it, you know, it was fun learning and it was fun discovering, but it would have been nice to, to have, had a bit more import before I knew, before I started. How do you think films. your career would be different if if you had more technical? Probably, probably not as successful. Right. <laughs> probably, 
The fact that I was sort of inventing my own sort of style and discovering how films got made, I was doing stuff that other people wouldn't necessarily approach it the well, same way. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Because, you know, again, I don't know why I'm talking about Spielberg, but again, second time, talk, think of Spielberg. Well, he's, he's a great a, filmmaker. He's, he's a great film, about. filmmaker, but I remember him saying in that same talk at the DGA that if he were more experienced, he never would have taken Jaws as a movie because he didn't know the difficulties he was about to get while making that movie. No. You know, the animatronic shark, the water, the weather, the no, swell, no. The, you know, everything. It's, uh, so sometimes being a little bit more naive is, is a good thing. Well, uh, you know, when you don't, I mean, like when I was doing Sleeping Dogs, there's a sequence. I mean, we only had so much money and it wasn't very much money yeah. to make the film. And there was one sequence that's in the rain and we just had, we started shooting in the rain and luckily it just kept raining all night. Because we had, we can, if it hadn't rained all night, we would have been really in the shit because we had half it in the rain and if it had stopped, we would have been really in trouble. But You didn't have any rain machines to fall back and on. If, if we had more money, we would have said, no, no, we'll, we'll do something different right, today. Right. So third and final part of the show, um, let's just talk about, you know, the aspiring directors that might be listening to this. Any words of encouragement that you can get? give somebody just trying to break into the industry for the first time? Well, you know, uh, well, good advice. You know, I mean, recently I've, two filmmakers in New Zealand, I've, I've acted as a mentor for right, them. Right. And the, the one thing I keep telling them is to trust your own instinct, you know, get on and do it. Don't wait for other people to give you the green light before you, you know, better to make five minutes of your movie than to make mm -hmm. nothing. And nobody, you know, it's hard to sometimes sell other people on what your vision is if they've got just a piece of paper. Mm. So sometimes if you've got the opportunity to shoot five minutes of your film or a particular sequence or something, just do that and so you've got a real calling card where you can, you know, somebody can see what your talent mm. is. Good advice. Can people find you on social media, Roger? Not really. No, I, you know, I haven't got time for that. I mean, I'm not derogatory about it. I'm just like my days so full with I don't have enough time to do what I'm trying no, to do. Anyway. So, how do you spend your days now? So, you're you're writing the majority of your days. Well, mostly writing. You know, writing and reading scripts. And, yeah. You know, kind of bright yeah. ideas. Talking to people <laughs> like you. This is what this is the one of the more pleasant uh, conversations that I've had. You know, it's great to talk to somebody who's really well informed and uh, obviously. Thank you. Just put in the hard work to go and see your films and those Well, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, I'm a huge fan of the Hitchcock Truffaut book. And I remember reading about uh, Truffaut and how he went and studied all of Hitchcock's movies with the diligence he did when he was, uh, you know, approaching a movie. So I knew going into this interview, I wanted to revisit, you know, and visit for the first time uh, your body of work and, and really give you the respect that you deserve. So no, well, it's, it's very much appreciated. You. Well, you've been fantastic guests. Thank you so much. Roger Thank you, Thompson. Jeff. Lovely to talk to you. And that's the show. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find me at jefftthomas.com or at jefftthomas on Twitter and Instagram. Remember 19 media.